Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 632 for the 3rd of March, 2019. This week, in podcast 631, we took a look at some blunt changes to the toast notifications that Windows 10 serves. If you'd like a finer grained control, I'll explain how to get it this week, along with some other tips and tweaks that can change how Windows works. In short circuits, it has been 30 years since Tim Berners-Lee proposed what would become the World Wide Web, now just the lowercase web. And the European Organization for Nuclear Research, or CERN, has made it possible for us to see what that work in progress looked like back then. Fernando, not Fernando, but Fernando Stalin says I should open a file that explains how $1,850 for my uncle will be delivered. Do you think I opened that message? And a day later, several scam messages appeared, and they all seemed to use the same goofy template. This makes spotting phonies easier. In spare parts, only on the website, those who once owned high-end audio gear may have had VU meters on their amps. Now you can add some old-school VU meters to your computer. And IBM and SEAT have announced an application that will help city dwellers know about their daily transportation options, from cars and scooters to bikes and public transit. Operating systems are installed with a bunch of default options, hundreds of them thousands, perhaps. The settings selected by the hardware manufacturer might not be the best settings for the way you want to use the computer. Let's take a look at some of the settings that can be changed. Now, this is going to be just a tiny sampling of changes that can be made. There are literally thousands of changes that can be made. Some are highly specialized, but at least dozens and maybe hundreds of options will be of interest to average users. Let's start with how you can change the install location and move some apps. Computers with relatively small solid-state drives are fast, but sometimes those SSDs start filling up. If you have a second internal mechanical drive or an external USB drive, it is possible to install applications there. The trade-off will be slower operation. SSDs are used for the operating system and applications because it allows them to start faster. Still, if the SSD is running out of space, setting the default installation location to an alternate drive will keep the boot drive from filling up entirely. There are other ways to recover space on the boot drive, though, and we'll get into those later. To change the default app location, open Settings and type Default Save Locations into the Search dialog. In the resulting dialog box, you can specify a default location for applications, documents, music, photos and videos, movies and TV shows, and offline maps. To move an application that's already been installed, open Apps and Features, find the app you want to move, and single-click it. Now, this works only with apps, not with desktop applications, so you won't see a move option for those standard desktop applications you have installed. Now let's move on to see how you can free up some disk space. 
Windows 10 keeps a lot of files that can be used when a problem occurs. For example, when a major update is installed, a Windows.old directory is created. That's a good idea to keep that folder around for at least a few days, but once you're sure the new version is operating as intended, it's safe to delete it. Also, if you haven't emptied the recycle bin, it may contain a lot of large files. And also, crash dump files aren't automatically deleted. To delete Windows.old, use File Explorer to open the boot drive. That's usually going to be drive C. If Windows.old is present, you can delete it manually. But a better option, and one that gets rid of more junk, is right-clicking the drive, selecting Properties from the Context menu, and then clicking the Disk Cleanup button. Select the files you want to delete, and also click Clean Up System Files. This will lead to a variety of other options, including the ability to empty the recycle bin, remove temporary files, and generally remove files that are doing nothing more than just taking up space. While you're in this vicinity, you also might want to see what is actually taking up space on the computer's drives. Start on the Storage panel in Settings and click a disk drive. This will open a panel that shows the types of files found on the drive. To see more, click one of the file types to open yet another panel showing the directories that contain files of that type. From there, you can drill down to specific directories and files. Oh, and here's one of those really annoying little things that's great when you get it fixed. A clever Windows 10 feature that's disabled by default is called background scrolling. Maybe something like this has happened to you. Let's say you're working on one document and using a second document for reference. The second document is open in, of course, another window or maybe even on a separate monitor. Well, when you need to see another part of the reference document, you have to click inside its window and then use the mouse's scroll wheel or the scroll bars to get to the new location. Wouldn't it be nice if you could just place the mouse over the second window? Not even click on it, just put the mouse over it and use the scroll wheel. Well, you can if background scrolling is enabled. To fix that, just open the mouse panel in Settings and turn on the option to scroll inactive windows when I hover over them. Done. And OneDrive does more than you think it does. You're probably already using OneDrive. Nearly everybody who uses Windows 10 has a Microsoft account because that makes logging in easier and helps to maintain settings across multiple computers. It also gives the user a OneDrive account. Now, you might think that OneDrive is just for storing files. Well, it's useful for that, of course, but it can do a lot more. When you enable the Fetch option on multiple computers, you'll be able to open files from one computer when you're using another computer, regardless of where the computers are located. Now, they both have to be online, of course, and OneDrive does have to be running on both. When those conditions have been met, Open OneDrive from the notification area and click View Online. Then select a computer and navigate to the file you want. The first time you try to connect, you'll need to be able to prove that you are who you say you are. It's a security measure. The easiest option involves using two-factor authentication with the mobile phone number linked to your Microsoft account. To activate this feature, open OneDrive from the notification area, click More, and then click Settings from the pop-up menu. In Settings, select Let me use OneDrive to fetch any of my files on this PC. 
You then need to log out of OneDrive and log back in or restart the computer. Follow the same process on the other computer and you'll have remote access to all of the drives either way, even network drives that are mapped to a drive letter. Oh, and I promised a better way to make toast toast. In last week's program, I described how Focus Assist can be used to limit the interruptions that Windows 10 displays with text boxes that pop up from the lower right corner. You do have other options, so let's take a look at those. If Focus Assist seems to be the equivalent of flipping between Mama Bear's porridge and Papa Bear's porridge, you can create the Baby Bear equivalent by modifying Action Center settings. When you do that, you can specify which apps are able to display notifications on an app-by-app -app basis. Start by going back to Notifications and Actions and Settings. Now, instead of the blunt object that offers little more than on or off, you can scroll down to see a list of applications that send notices. Each sender can be set to off or on, and those senders that are enabled have other settings that control whether banners are shown, whether a sound plays, how many notifications from a single application can be present in the notification area, and what the notification's priority is. And there's a lot more. Windows 10 has more settings than you can shake a stick at, in case you have a stick handy to shake. What I've described are just a few of the settings that can be changed. When you wonder if there might be a better way for Windows to respond to certain conditions, start by typing a word into the Settings search box. Maybe you don't like the standard sounds that ship with Windows. Eh, try typing sounds into settings. That'll offer several suggestions, one of which is Change System Sounds. And selecting that opens a dialog box where you can choose System Sounds or No Sounds. Now, that may not seem like much of a choice, but you can save System Sounds using a new name, maybe something like My Sounds, and then browse for sound files on your computer that you'd like to use instead of the default sounds or you can just turn an individual sound off. That is a trivial example, but performing a search like that will often lead you to settings that can be used to make exactly the changes you want. If you find nothing there, try Microsoft's support site and search for what you want to do. You'll find a link to the Microsoft support site from TechBiter Worldwide this week, www.techbiter.com. Recommendations here come from Microsoft's support technicians and from users. Now, word of caution, the answers aren't always correct, so proceed with caution. And if you're still looking for help, try a more general search engine query with Google or Bing or DuckDuckGo and use the same term. But be even more careful here because not all websites that claim to provide answers are reliable, and some may try to install applications that claim to find problems, run a purported scan, find a problem, and then fix the problem only when you pay. In short circuits, let's look ahead a few weeks and back several decades. On March 12th, we'll be celebrating the 30th anniversary of the World Wide Web, or actually the 30th anniversary of when people started thinking about the World Wide Web. In 1989, Tim Berners-Lee at the physics lab near Geneva, Switzerland, was trying to solve a problem. Scientists needed to be able to share information, and Berners-Lee had an idea for a system of interlinked documents. He submitted a document called Information Management, a proposal that described his vision. 
it was approved. Berners-Lee released his code publicly on December 25, 1990, and in 1993, the first commercial browser, Mosaic, was developed at the University of Illinois by Mark Andreessen. That was the basis for Netscape, which was released in 1994. So this month, we celebrate the 30th anniversary of the idea that led to the web. In 1990, Steve Jobs had built his next computer, and that's what Berners-Lee used to show what his invention could do. CERN has now rebuilt the original browser so that it will work inside a contemporary browser. If you'd like to see what everybody was really excited about in those days, launch CERN's World Wide Web application. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter World Wide website. Your first thought will probably be along the lines of, wow, that's primitive, and you would be correct. To view a modern page as it would have appeared back then, select Document from the menu at the left, and click Open from Full Document Reference. Then fill in a URL and click Open. I used last week's program link to create the graphics that are on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. Now, graphics were not supported back then. Images began to be supported in 1993 by the NCSA Mosaic. The page title appears at the top of the window, and the TechBiter Worldwide menu is represented as list items. Now, the podcast link appears, but it wouldn't have back then. This might be something that's being displayed by a modern browser after being passed through the original CERN browser. And you'll find entities such as the ampersand NBSP, that's a non-breaking space. They weren't supported back then, so if one is there, you'll just see it right there in the text. Several browser wars have erupted. In the early days, Mosaic had the lead, but Netscape took over in the late 1990s. Internet Explorer took most of the market from 2001 to 2010, but Google's Chromium has now largely taken over. Even Microsoft's Edge browser will be based on the Chromium engine soon. And in fact, next week's main topic will be about another browser that's based on Chromium. Among the scams I've received this week and identified in less than 10 seconds is a Western Union message that claims to be about transferring nearly $2,000 for my uncle. Now let's take a look at the signs that mark this one as a phony. The message claims to be from Fernando, not Fernando, but Fernando Stalin. Now, I don't know anyone named Fernando Stalin. Fernando would be a Spanish name. Fernando, I don't think so. Stalin, of course, is a Russian name. Stalin isn't really a name in Russian. It just means man of steel. It's the name adopted by Yosef Vissaranovich Zhugashvili. He's the native of Georgia who became the USSR's premier following the suspicious death of Vladimir Ilyich Yulonov, who adopted the name Lenin. Well, all of this stuff is suspicious, but not exactly definitive. Then there's the salutation. It's, hello, good day. Well, you know, if someone is sending me $1,850 for my uncle, I would expect that person to know my name and to address me as such in the message. The message was also sent to my TechBiter email address. That's 
not the address I use for business, at least non-techbiter business. And although the message claims to be from Fernando Stalin, the sender's signature identifies him as Samson French, which is another unlikely name combination. The STS International Trading Company, which is in the signature, seems not to exist. And the name of the town the message supposedly comes from, Stalin Height, appears not to be a town in Germany. There is no website information for an stsinternational.com either. And then there's the attachment. The attachment is presented as a PDF document, but it's really an ACE file. ACE is a file compression process, and the file probably contains either malware or a link to malware. I didn't open the file. Too many red flags to consider this anything other than a fraud. And speaking of frauds, scammers apparently can buy message templates now and then just fill in the appropriate bits of information to support their particular scam. I received two messages within a couple of hours of each other this week, and they were nearly identical, except that one claimed to be from Google and the other claimed to be from F. Facebook. Yes, there was a hyphen between F and Facebook, so that would be F. Facebook. Well, anyway, the attempts were so lame that I didn't need to do anything more than just glance at them. I didn't have to trace any IP addresses or find out who's registered a domain name or look at the raw message stream. Everything I needed was right there on the screen in front of me. The silly message from Google showed a sender of warning. Strange sender name. And the silly message from Facebook showed a sender of F. Facebook. I could have stopped right there, but I decided to look further just for fun. Both of the messages were sent to an address that isn't mine, so it's obvious that I was on a blind copy list. The fake message from Google placed double question marks on each side of its warning headline. The fake Facebook message used two exclamation points instead. That, too, would be enough to reveal either message as a phony. The phony Google message did use the address I've associated with my Google account, and the phony Facebook message used the same address, but that's not the address I use with Facebook. Both messages used variants of buttons to confirm or deny the usage they're reporting, but both showed non-English use of punctuation, and the Google message also had incorrect capitalization on one of the buttons. And then there was the explanatory message. Except for the name of the service, the warning text was identical in each message. A user has just signed in to your Google or Facebook account from a new device. We are sending you this email to verify that it is you. Word for word, both messages. The message purporting to be from Google said that the user who logged into my account was in Moscow, Russian. The name of the country is not Russian, it is Russia. And the Google message also offered me an option to unsubscribe from the newsletter. So bottom line here, error after error after error. The score for the scammers is zero for two. Or if you want to count the additional copies of the messages that I received the same day, well, mark it down as about zero for 15. Hopefully I'll have better success in spare parts only on the website. This week... Those who once owned high-end audio gear may have had VU meters on their amps. Now you can add some old-school VU meters to your computer. 
And IBM and SEAT have announced an application that will help city dwellers know about their daily transportation options, from cars and scooters to bikes and public transit. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.